0: Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho, copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon.
1: And all God's people said, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Isaiah 25.1 says, O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Father God, you have gathered your people together, not only here in this sanctuary, but around the world. Your saints have gathered to sing your praises. We will exalt you, testifying to the world of your great worth, your great wonder, and the steadfastness of your truth. The world builds its empires on the sand of shifting fads and trends, but you have established your kingdom on the solid rock of truth, righteousness, and goodness. So, Almighty God, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Let's sing together Psalm 47, found on page 9 of your bulletin. In our user-friendly age, we want things to be efficient. If there's a challenge, we want the easiest way around it. So, a worldly-minded cynic might come to this portion of our service where we confess our sins and think that confessing your sins is about as effective in the fight against sin as wearing high heels for a 100-meter race. If the goal is to make our fight against sin easier, confessing your sins seems a bit futile. Ten minutes after you've risen from your knees, the cynic may inquire whether you're facing temptation again. Sure enough, our experience seems to prove the cynic right. Not long from now, an upcoming appointment may spark the familiar squeeze of paralyzing fear and anxiety. An internet ad may invite the whispers of lust-fueled desires. A glimpse of your rival may trigger an episode of bitter jealousy. However, the goal of confession isn't to get rid of our temptations or to make facing them easier. In fact, confessing your sin as sin means that the next temptation will likely be stronger, not weaker. The tempter will need to be more subtle, not more obvious. As a wise old, older Christian once taught me, the easiest way To get rid of temptation is to give into it. We don't confess our sins out of a utilitarian wish that this will make things run smoother. We do so to be obedient. Confess your sin, knowing temptation will confront you likely before this service is even over. Confess it as the black and vile evil that it is. Confess it to be the very sins for which God sent his son into the world to save you from. Confess it not to make the fight against sin easier, but because confessing your sin is how you fight against and conquer sin through Christ. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so let us prepare to do so by singing, Chide me, O Lord, no longer. Amen. So as you're able, let us kneel together in confession of our sin. Isaiah 1:18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Father God, we've imbibed the values of our culture. We have craved the comfort and ease of a pampered generation rather than the battle-tested hardness of an obedient soldier. Rather than fight against sin, we've appeased it, courted it, brought it home, and fed it. You tell us that our cowardice is scarlet, and we're offended that you'd be so demeaning to the lived experience of victims. You tell us that our apathy is red like crimson, and we huff that you aren't being very compassionate or kind to our felt needs. Forgive us for gerrymandering the borderlines of sin. Forgive us for our cowardice and apathy while watching our nation redefine pregnancy as an inconvenience, an unborn child as a fetus, pornography as harmless entertainment, and marriage as whatever your sexual desires are at the moment. Forgive us for failing to fight not only, only these big societal battles, but also the more subtle ones. We call our discontentment, lust, bitterness, rage, lies, and laziness by a thousand names other than what they are, sin. Black, unholy, heinous sin. If we in the church regard sin in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know that this prayer will be ineffectual. So we now confess our individual sins to you now, and Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name. And amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 29 24. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. The good news is the doctrine which God aims to teach us. And the good news is that through the blood of Christ, God forgives your sins. So I declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Amen. The text this morning is
0: Psalm 100. These are the words of God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word before us. I pray that you would teach us, instruct us, admonish us, build us up, we pray, because we turn to you in Jesus' name. and Amen. Amen. So true worship comes from true hearts, obviously. In order for the worship to be true, the hearts that offer the worship have to be true themselves. And true hearts are filled to overflowing with gladness. If you're not overflowing with gladness, if gladness is not a uh, routine frame of mind, then there's a problem. This gladness can be solemn as it is at a wedding. So for example, uh, Middle English had a word solemnna to describe that, we, we think of uh, glad occasions as sometimes frothy occasions, like, they, like a junior high pep rally, you know, we love our school, yes, we do. We love our school, how about you? Um, that, kind, that kind of gladness is certainly not sad, but that's not the kind of gladness that we're talking about at a wedding. At a wedding, it's joyful and it's solemn at the same time. You can also have a gladness that is jubilant at the other end of the spectrum as after a victorious battle where there's a lot of shouting and rejoicing and singing, exuberant shouting. But the thing it must never be, the thing that gladness must never be, is sullen or surly or sulky. That's what it never is. Who needs that kind of worship? Who needs that kind of service? The answer is certainly not the Lord. The Lord does not want us coming into his courts with a, as though a long face were some sort of moral disinfectant, uh, as, as though a long face is somehow pleasing to him. We are told here, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands, serve the Lord with gladness. So this is a psalm of thanksgiving, praise, and joy. All the tribes, all the lands are invited to join in on the task of making this joyful noise. Verse 1, true service rendered to God is, of necessity, glad service rendered to God. If it isn't glad service rendered to God, then I want to repeat it again. It's not true service. It's not true worship if the keynote is not gladness. We are supposed to come into his presence with singing, which is the indicator that we're supposed to do it with gladness, verse two. We begin this service of worship with knowledge. Notice that it says know that the Lord is God, verse 3. If you know who God is, if you know the attributes of God, if you know what God is like, then certain things necessarily follow. Gladness necessarily follows if you understand the sovereignty of God, if you understand the goodness of God, if you understand the infinite kindness of God and his justice and his holiness, if you understand who God is, how would it be possible to come before him, knowing yourself to be accepted by him and not be glad? So we come before him with knowledge. Know that the Lord, he is God, verse 3. He is the one who has made us and not we ourselves, also, verse 3. He has done things for us. We have not done things for him. The fundamental posture of worship begins with the recognition that we are brought into his presence by him, not uh, this is not something we've attained to on our own strength or uh, on our own steam. As we come into his presence, we should do it with thanksgiving and praise. Verse 4, we must be thankful to him, and we must bless his name. Also verse 4. The Lord is truly good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. Verse 5. So, go to worship God once a week, be happy. Is that the message? (laughs) Be glad? That sums it up. Well, there's more involved in it. The word rendered here as serve in verse 1, it has the sense of worship. It has the sense of worship. This is what worship is. Worship is service. Worship is service. Worship is doing what God requires of us. If God has told you to do something, then doing that thing is your service of worship. We are accustomed to those who treat praise and worship as synonyms, but they really are not synonyms. Some people will say, well, this is the praise and worship part of the service. And what they mean there is, this is the part of the service where everybody sings. So the praise and worship part is where everybody's singing. And so praise and worship are being treated as uh, interchangeable uh, synonyms. Now it's true that all praise ought to be worship. But it's not true that worship is praise. Worship is praise and a number of other things. Worship is when we make ourselves available to do whatever God is requiring. Of us, whatever God requires of us, that is worship. Worship is service. Worship is service. So a worship service is a service service. A worship service is here. Here I am. I'm available. What would you have me do? So worship is to appear before the Lord in an obedient frame of mind, appearing before the Lord in a submissive and obedient frame of mind, is what worship is. Present your bodies, Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, and then in the next breath he says, which is your spiritual worship? What is your spiritual worship? It is presenting your body, saying here, Here's my body, what would you have me do? My body is, is a living sacrifice, what would you have me render with it? That means the chair you're sitting on is an altar, that means the car you're driving is an altar, that means the bed you're sleeping on is an altar, the dining room chair you sit in is an altar, the floor you walk on is an altar, you're a living sacrifice, you're a sacrifice that moves around on the altar, but everything you're moving around on is an altar present your bodies, a living sacrifice, moving around, which is your spiritual worship. When Isaiah catches a glimpse of the Lord, high and lifted up in the temple, the conclusion of that interaction is, here am I, Lord, send me. That is worship. That is the posture of worship. Now, Isaiah has to confess his sins first. His first reaction is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. God has an angel uh, cleanse his lips with the coal from the altar. But the end result of all of that is Isaiah's commissioning and he is sent out to do what God has tasked, tasked him to do. Doing what God says is obedience, but it is obedient worship. Doing what God says to do is Worship. And when you come to a worship service, you are putting yourself in a frame of mind to do whatever he would ask you to do in the hours and the days following the worship service. So you come and say, Lord, whatever you would have me, to, whatever you would have me do, I will do it. That's worship. And God says to you, speak a little more kindly to your wife. Anything but that. I'll be a missionary I will go to the ends of the earth I will climb the highest mountain I will cross the deepest sea. Now just speak to, just be kind to your wife. That's your spiritual worship. You you have you have not you're not permitted to say lord I will do anything you ask of me except for this and this. That doesn't work. That's not worship. That doesn't work, that's not worship. What you're doing is you're opening yourself up completely and you're saying, God, please, in the week to come, tell me unpleasant truths about myself. In the week to come, reveal to me that I'm a bigger part of the problem than I thought I was. Lord, reveal to me that in the squabble that I have got with this coworker at work that maybe I started it, maybe he didn't start it. Maybe I'm the problem in our marriage. Maybe I'm maybe I speak harshly to the kids, that I'm I'm too much of the wrong kind of a disciplinarian. What a worship service does is you put everything, you push all your chips, all your little ego chips, you push out on the table. You say, God, here it is, everything. Take whatever you want. I will do whatever you want. Take whatever you want. Mess with me. That's what worship is. When Abraham sacrificed uh, or almost sacrificed Isaac. He thought he was going to sacrifice Isaac. He thought that God was going to restore Isaac, raise him from the dead. He knew God God had promised him that his descendants would be reckoned through Isaac. So Abraham did not, uh, it was not a question of, this was not a test of Abraham's love. It was a test of his faith. It was a test of his faith. He he, He knew that God had promised him descendants through Isaac. And he also knew that he was coming down off that mountain with Isaac. Hebrews tells us that he was expecting Isaac to be raised from the dead. But he tells the servants at the base of the mountain they travel with the servants. And he tells the servants at the base of the mountain, we're going to go up the mountain, we're going to worship and we are going to return to you. He says, we are going to come back to you. He says to the servants, two go up the mountain and two are coming down the mountain. That's what he said. But he also said we're going to go up the mountain and we're going to worship He did not mean we're gonna break out the overhead projector and the guitars and a little tambourine and have a little service. He did not say that we're going to do this, we're gonna sing a little song or sing a little praise and worship. He said we're gonna go up the mountain and I'm gonna do what God told me to do. I'm going going to go up and I'm going to obey. That's what worship is. So what you wanna do is be asking God, Lord, Obviously, obviously, everybody knows that you can't have a thumb on this piece of your life and a thumb on this piece of your life. We all know that. It's obvious when I do it like this. But it's not so obvious when, our, when we have invisible thumbs on invisible aspects of our lives. What we have to do is acknowledge. What worship does is acknowledge that that's a possibility. God, I know that it's possible. In fact, I know that it's likely that I'm deceiving myself. It's not, not just possible that I'm deceiving myself. In some area or other, it is likely that I'm deceiving myself, and I'm asking you, because I'm worshiping you, I'm opening myself up to you in every respect, I'm asking you to reveal to me any aspect of my life where I am kidding myself. So Isaiah worships the Lord, hear my Lord, send me. Abraham went up the mountain and he worshiped the Lord. All Christians are told to present their bodies a living sacrifice, which is their spiritual worship. Surrender everything in principle. Christians must be totally surrendered in principle. If you're not totally surrendered in principle, if you say, "Yes, I'll uh, I'll I'll live a Christian life, except for uh, my my wife is just unmanageable. I'm just I can't. It's not realistic to expect me to do what the Bible says there. Or it's not realistic for me to bring up my kids the way the Bible says to bring up. That's not realistic. It's not realistic for me to manage my finances the way the Bible says. That's not realistic. That's not worship. And if you are consciously holding anything back, you're like Ananias and Sapphira who are bringing part of your, you know, part of your offering and pretending, pretending that it's the whole. So we come to worship the Lord because he tells us to. But we must also worship the Lord in the way he tells us to. We're not just to show up at the right spot, we're to show up with the right attitude. Not just show up at the right sanctuary, not just show up at the right place, but show up with the right demeanor. It's not enough simply to show up. And so here he summons us to come before his presence with thanksgiving and with praise and with singing and with gladness. The gladness has to flow out of the singing. You can't substitute the singing for the gladness. It's got to be singing that proceeds from gladness. Now, we're to do this because we know that the Lord God is the one who has made us. He is the one who fashioned us. It would be natural and, I think, not wrong for us to interpret this gladness as gladness in the mere fact of our creation. You didn't have to be here, and yet here you are. You didn't have to exist, and yet you do. You didn't have to have consciousness, and yet you have consciousness. You didn't have to have loved ones, and yet you have loved ones. Here you are. So God is the one who gave you the gift of existence. God is the one who gave you the gift of existence. And so we know he is the one who has made us, not we ourselves. We did not evolve to this place by ourselves. So it's not wrong to interpret this as gladness in the mere fact of our physical creation. I don't think that's wrong. I think that's part of this. We are creatures, and we did not fashion ourselves. We did not invent ourselves. We did not make ourselves. We did not create ourselves. Of course not. But John Calvin, interestingly, interprets this place as talking about our recreation, our recreation and God's regeneration of us. Calvin says that when it says that he is the one who's made us and not we ourselves. He is saying, in effect, he is the one who's remade us. He's the one who's refashioned us. He's the one who's recreated us. And this, um, because we, you can argue for this by saying the psalmist follows it up immediately with the observation that we are the sheep of his pasture. So we are the sheep of his pasture. Calvin assumes that this is talking about the gift of the new birth, God making us his sheep in a world where there are many goats. All right, so God, at the the, end of at the end of the... At the, end of the World, the the sheep and the goats are divided, and Calvin says, "What what credit is it to me that I've been called to be among the sheep?" Right, well, God is the one who's made us, not we ourselves. We we didn't do this ourselves. We didn't. Uh, the The Christian army is not a volunteer force. All of us were drafted. All right? all of all of us were conscripted. All of us were summoned to serve in God's army, and. When we first got the summons, we weren't willing for what he was intending for us. But he gave us the gift of willingness also. So God is the one who's made us, not we ourselves. We didn't make our own physical bodies, but neither did we recreate ourselves spiritually either. Now, this thanksgiving, this thanksgiving is based on knowledge. This thanksgiving is based on knowledge. Because we know that the Lord is God... Because we know that he is the one who has made us, or remade us, or and, or remade us. Therefore, what follows? What follows is a joyful noise. What follows is singing. What follows is gladness, thanksgiving, praise, and a blessing of his name. All of these things are mentioned in this very short psalm. Joyful noise, singing, gladness, thanksgiving, praise, and a blessing of God's name. This knowledge is not a knowledge that simply uses the name God as a placeholder, but rather understands the godness of God. All right, so this is all proceeding from what we know. We know that God is a certain way. If we simply have a token with God written on it, like a poker chip with God written on it, and we put it in a certain place, you could have it in the right place in your systematic theology and not have it be in the right place in your head and heart. You have to have God in your head and heart. You have to have God in the right place. You have to have God, the Godness of God occupy the right place in your mind and heart. We are not Stoics. We are not fatalists. We know that God is ultimately and absolutely God and that he is in utter control of all events. God controls absolutely everything. This includes the events that we naturally and spontaneously thank him for, obviously, but it also includes those hard providences that we have difficulty processing. So let's consider this. We just came out of Thanksgiving week. How hard is it to thank God for the pumpkin pie? How, how hard is it to thank God for the turkey? How hard is it to thank God for family that is, have gathered from all over the country? How, how hard is it to thank God that you're, it's cold outside and it's warm inside and you're all sitting around fellowshipping with people you love and people who love you? Those things are, that's a straightforward thanksgiving. And we should be thankful for them, all right? But that's sort of a right-handed thanksgiving. That's a right-handed thanksgiving. And God gives us enough of those so that we might have training in what it's like to be grateful, What's, what it's like to be grateful, <coughs> grateful to him. Excuse me. So we, we naturally and spontaneously thank him for those sorts of things. But there are, in every life here, in every person's life here, there are hard providences. There are potentially hard providences, and there are actual hard providences. It says in Job that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Everybody has troubles. Everybody has troubles. All of us have them. And our temptation is to say, yeah, but not like mine, right? Yeah, but if if only they could see what I'm going through, well, that's, that's, uh, yeah, you've got troubles, they've got troubles, and objectively, God knows who's got the worst troubles, but that, that's just self-pity talking. When self-pity says, yeah, but they, they, don't have, they don't know what it's like to be me. They don't know what it's like to be going through what I'm going through. Well, that's, we've got the wrong end of the stick. When you enter his courts with thanksgiving, when you come here, you're coming into God's courts and you're coming into his courts with thanksgiving. Every last one of you is carrying something. You bring something. And every last one of you brings something that is awkward, angular, heavy, hard to hold, hard to, hard to manage. It could, be, it could be financial trouble. It could be academic trouble in school. It could be uh, business challenges. It could be marriage challenges. It could be next door neighbor challenges. It could be barking dog in the middle, middle of the night challenges. It could be any number of things. But everybody here comes with something, Everybody here, if I said, quick, think of a trouble, I don't think anybody would say, could you give me more time? <laughs> Everybody here has troubles. And you're supposed to carry that trouble into his courts, and you're supposed to carry that trouble into his courts with thanksgiving. Each one of you brings something here with you in order to present it to the Lord. When you are making yourself available, for service, you are making yourself and your troubles available for service. You're making your, when you say, here, my Lord, send me, what are you making available for service? Everything you have and are, including the deficits, including the difficulties. If you say, Lord, my business is available for you to use however you you want, and he says, including all the red ink? Yeah, yeah, including that. When you present your business When you present your family, when you present your life to him, you're presenting all of it. When you say, here am I, Lord, send me, you are including your troubles. Your troubles are part of the presentation. And this is why you can do it with gladness. So, each one of you brings something here to present to the Lord. If that's a bountiful thing, an old school Thanksgiving week, the turkey is great and the gravy is better... Uh, if that's a bountiful thing, a good harvest thing, a happy promotion thing, then it's our delight to fulfill our duty in this, and we 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 rejoice with those who rejoice. When someone brings a great Thanksgiving to church, and you find out about it, and you had a tough week, and they had a fantastic week, how's that supposed to go? How's that supposed to go? You're supposed. If you had the tough week, you're supposed to rejoice with the person who didn't have a tough week, and the person who didn't have a tough week is supposed to weep with those who weep. We all belong to one another. We don't. We are not to resent the person who is thanking God for all the good stuff, and here am I stuck with this difficult problem. No. When you're, when you're making yourself available for service, when you're saying, here am I, Lord, send me, you're saying, here am I, Lord, send me and my troubles. Lord, send me and my difficulties. Lord, send me and my frailties. Lord, send me and everything that I have and am, it's all yours. So, it's our delight to thank the Lord for the good stuff. But a number of you are dealing with or reeling under what can only be understood as hard circumstances. It may be a difficult diagnosis. It might be a straying loved one. It might be financial pressures. It might be end of life decisions. It might be hard duties. Might be an impossible person in your life. It might be a difficult boss or any number of other possibilities. That's what you're putting that's what you're giving to God. When you, give, when you give yourself to him, you're giving everything that's on your plate to him. Everything that you're dealing with is going to him. And you're supposed to do it with gladness. You're supposed to do it with gladness. When you come into God's courts, that is what you must carry in with you to present to him, and you must do it with gladness. And this is only possible through a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can make it possible for you to look at this difficult, gnarly circumstance in your life and thank God for it and to present it to him with gladness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this, Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Lord, what is your will for me? I want to know your will for me. Please show me your will so I can go do it. Okay? In everything, give thanks. That's my will for you. Uh, I would like to do another will for me. <laughs> I, I, is there... Is there another option? Can I do something else? No. What is God's will for you? What's God's will for you? In everything, give thanks. You've just been told by the doctor that you have a week to live. What do you do? You get on your knees and you thank Jehovah. You thank God. Now, you might say, this is a steep. that's a steep mountain to climb. Well, look, you've got a week to live. You're going to climb it anyway right? You're going anyway, right? You've got this trouble anyway. Why, why on earth do, you, why do we think that it's a good argument to say, well, I've got this really difficult trouble, so I think I'm going to add misery, to, to little misery on top of it, an ungrateful spirit on top of it. Yeah, it's hard. Yes, these, there are difficult, angular problems in your life. Yes, they really are difficult, But as I've said, oftentimes in counseling people, there's no problem that you're confronting, but that you can't make it worse. The pastor said encouragingly. (laughs) That's not what I was expecting when I came. Well, look, but it's true. I've seen many people who came in, um, came in with some sort of problem, uh, you know, four out of 10, and by assiduous disobedience and not listening to counsel, they've turned it into a seven out of 10. All right? you can your problems can always get worse your problems can always get worse so if you have a hard diagnosis or you have difficult news or someone you love dearly is straying and not walking with the lord someone you've got you've got this problem whatever problem it is a sullen surly unhappy attitude from you will only make it worse you think, you think a straying loved one is going to be brought back to the faith by your, by your misery and tears and self-pity? Do you think that's attractive? Do you think that's going to bring them back? No. Then in Ephesians 5.20, it says in 1 Thessalonians, it says, in everything give thanks. In Ephesians 5.20, it says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, it takes it up a step. Give thanks for everything. Give thanks for it. Lord, I thank you for this diagnosis. I thank you for this news, bad news from the auditor. I thank you for this uh, report back from the pathology lab. I I thank you for this. I know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And I know that you have good in in mind for your son and for everyone who is in your son, and I want to embrace that and I want to pursue that with everything I have got. And so consequently, when you come before him to worship him with gladness, you are doing this in a world that has difficulties. When, uh, When this psalm was written, what was the average life expectancy then? Right? What, was, what, was the, what was the state of medical care back then, 1000 BC? What, was the, what were the conditions back then? Not so bad that they couldn't, that the psalmist can't say, approach him with gladness, come before his gates with thanksgiving. Now, there's an important point here that I don't want to have go neglected. This is gladness. This is gladness not maneuvering. This is gladness not politicking. Gladness in all things and for all things is not maneuvering, it's not waffling, it's not noodling. You're not trying to manage God. You, or if, you're, you're trying, if you are trying to manage God, you should stop it because it's simply not going to work. All right, God is not manageable. God is not going to go where you tell him to go. He is the absolute, you know, you can thank him for all things because he is in absolute control of everything and he has the glory of his son and the good of his people in mind. Because of that, we need to understand this as growing up into maturity. Now, let me take a common stressor, finances, to illustrate what I mean by this. common stressor is finances. If I said, if, if we went around and did a survey on when, what troubles came to mind, when I said everybody here's got troubles, finances would probably be a leading contender. So let's say, let's say that you consistently have too much month left at the end of your money. All right, your, your money's out and your month isn't. Financial pressure is a constant reality in your life. The temptation when you are not leaning in the gladness direction, so you let's say you need 500 bucks to finish the month out current. Right? You you're you're 500 bucks in the hole and you're stressed and you're you've got a problem and it's difficult. You could and and actually when you transfer tax brackets, some people they're just 500 uh, bucks shy, and then you transfer up to another tax bracket and they're 5,000 bucks shy, and someone else is 50,000 bucks shy, but it's, it's the same principle all the way up. Let's say you consistently have too much month at the end of your money. The temptation, when you're not leaning in the gladness direction, is to want, desire, and pray for extra money, that 500 bucks, in order that the pressure might be relieved or lifted. Okay? You've got pressure on you, and you want that pressure to go away. I don't have money for this bill. I want that pressure to go away. I'm asking God for 500 bucks so that the pressure may go away. And this is backwards. It's it's wrong-headed. Fourth grade is too much for you, and so you are praying that a miracle might happen that will get you somehow back into third grade. That's what you want. Do you, don't you realize if God gave you, let's say you're struggling along and, and 500 bucks a month is your shortfall, and, and let's say someone, uh, you know, crazy aunt died and left you a pile, and all of a sudden you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars, all of a sudden you've got more money than you ever thought of knowing what to do with. If you are thinking biblically about it, what has that done? That has increased your stress. It has increased your difficulties. It has increased. Seventh grade math is harder than fourth grade math. Right, you've been promoted. So when you're asking God for more, what you're asking God for is more trouble. Right? Now, if you're, if, you're, if you're muddled about this, you're saying, Lord, give me more so I can have less trouble. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If you're growing up into maturity, God is, is equipping you by giving you more difficulties so that you can carry more, so you can do more. So praying to praying somehow that you would have the status of being promoted to fifth grade while getting the work of third grade doesn't work that way. People who are well, people who are well-to-do, people who have a lot of money have way more stress than people who don't. There's a lot of extra responsibility, and if you say no, I, I want, but I want to get a lot of money and not worry about the stress. I want to be the redneck who wins the lottery. That's what I want, and I want to go out in a three-week blaze of glory. (laughs) No, you don't. Not if you're a Christian. Not if you're thinking Christianly. So more money is additional weight. It's additional responsibility. Our problem is that we ignore that part of it when we pray for more. We actually ask for more responsibility so that we might be allowed to be less responsible, which is absurd. We say, Lord, give me more so that I might have more more things to be responsible for so that I might be less responsible. That's absurd. It doesn't work that way. Gladness grows you up. If you're glad for your troubles, you are glad when they increase. If you're glad for your troubles, you are glad when they grow. Why? Because God is giving you additional responsibility. If you think, if you think that we're here in order to you know, sit around in this uh, comfortable lounge, uh, sharing with one another how good Jesus is, and and having meals together, and uh, that's really good, and we enjoy one another, and we tell stories, and we joke, that. Okay. But what, what if the kingdom of God is more like Navy SEALs training camp? What's good, what's good news there? What's good news there? If you're in a training camp, if you are being put through the paces, if you're being disciplined to grow up into full fitness and responsibility, if you're in that situation, your, your idea of good news is gonna be completely different than if you're thinking that we're just sitting around in a lounge somewhere uh, chatting. No, it doesn't work that way. Gladness grows you up. Mature Christians are the glad Christians. Mature Christians are the glad Christians, and glad Christians are the ones on their way to maturity. And poutiness is never a mature look. And poutiness wants to go both directions at once. Self-pity wants to go both directions at once. I want all the perks of having a lot of money and none of the responsibility of having a lot of money. But, I hate to break it to you, God did not make the world that way. The world does not function that way. Promotions at work don't happen that way. You don't, you don't get promoted so you have more privileges and less responsibility. It doesn't work like that. And the, and the, the occasional person, you know, the occasional redneck who wins the lottery and who looks like, well, that's an exception to what you just said, that person is in the process of destroying himself. That's what's happening. If you are a Christian who wants to walk with God, you want to grow up into gladness, which is growing up into additional responsibility, which is when you come to, when you come to worship and you say, here am I, Lord, send me every week, you're asking God to put another weight on the, on the, on the weight training bar. You're, you're wanting the weight to be more when you leave, not less right now is shouldn't we shouldn't aren't we told in scripture to cast our burdens on him because he cares for us and shouldn't isn't there a sense in which we want god to help us carry our burdens and so, it actually says in galatians 6 that each person should carry his own burden and we should help one another carry one another's burdens both are true we carry our own burden and we want to think about it biblically so that as we're carrying our burden, we are carrying it in a way that establishes us in our walk with Christ. We are Christians, this, this psalm concludes with, uh, with the statement that the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting. We are Christians, we are followers of Christ and Christ is Lord and the Lord is good for His mercy, the word is hesed, loving kindness. The Lord's hesed, the Lord's mercy, His tender mercy, His loving kindness, is everlasting. The tender loving kindness of the Lord lasts forever, and it can sometimes feel brutal. Right? If you're understanding what I'm saying, the tender mercies. If you if you are if you've thought. If, if you look back over your life and think it through carefully, if you I, I know that some of the toughest things I've ever gone through, in ref, on reflection, you're getting it a few years into the rearview mirror, were the best things that ever happened to me. That was the very best thing that ever happened to me, and I wouldn't have picked it off of a roster to save my life, right? I wouldn't have said, "Hey, I want that to happen." I wouldn't have picked it out beforehand, but after the fact, I can see that God's purpose in it was glorious. So you want to look back over your life and you want to say, his mercy, his hesed is everlasting and his hesed includes the tough spots. His hesed to me, his tender mercies, his loving kindness to me includes those tough spots. So this is his truth and his truth never runs out. It endures to all generations. That was true when these words were written and now thousands of years later we are not not even close to the end of all generations we are not close to the end of all generations his truth endures forever his loving kindness endures forever and this is because christ is yesterday today and forever christ is eternally relevant and if you say i don't know how to i don't know how to embrace this maturity thing. i don't know how to embrace this call to gladness i don't i don't I don't know how to embrace this tough, this, this summons to a tough-minded gladness. How do, I, how do I do this? The answer is you look to Christ. If you want to know what tough-minded gladness is, you need to look at Christ on the cross. What was he doing there? Why did he go there? It says in Hebrews that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus went to the cross because of gladness. Jesus went to the cross because of gladness, the joy that was set before him. He knew the story. He knew the narrative arc. He knew how it was all going to go. And if you're struggling with whatever it is in your life, whatever it is, it's not as bad as that. Whatever it is, it's not the tough thing that Jesus agonized over in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any way for this to pass for me, let it pass for me. Jesus did it. Why did Jesus do it? He did it because there was joy set before him. He did it because there was gladness set before him. He did it because he knew that there was going to come a time when he would stand in the midst of the great congregation and say, "Here am I and all the children you have given me." And those children include you. And he wants you to be like him in that attitude, in the attitude toward these He wants you to understand the story the same way he understood the story. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this opportunity to consider your word. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the man who wrote it.
1: This week, social media timelines were bloated like a teenage boy on his third plate of Thanksgiving meal with images of a feast. These images were all intended to show the glory of the feast, the perfectly roasted turkey and impeccably glazed pie, steaming potatoes, and flawlessly manicured table decor. Today, we come to another feast. In fact, this feast is the most glorious of feasts. Glory is placed here on this table. Glory is what we're about to eat. The glory of this feast takes the form of simple bread and wine. Bread which reminds us of the mangled body of God's beloved Son, broken for us, hanging on a Roman cross. Wine, which reminds us of his blood which flowed for our atonement. There is glory here which can't be seen through the lens of the perfect Instagram filter. The glory seen here is only seen by faith. The glory of this meal is such that the combined bank accounts of Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and George Soros can't afford the price tag of this feast. Here is bread which we can't afford, offered to us free of charge. The entrance fee to this feast has been paid. God the Father has made the table. The expense for it all has been covered by God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit invites you through the words of Isaiah. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. The Thanksgiving feast this past week is a shadow glory of the true feast. Here is a feast with the richest of fare. Here is a feast of glory. Here is a feast of the very body and blood of Christ. So come and welcome to Jesus. Amen. Uh, Oftentimes when we're looking for how do I get the joy and gladness that Pastor Doug was preaching about this morning, uh, we must not imagine it as coming to God saying, God, I need some some joy. Do you have any joy and gladness for me? And we must not imagine him as being some sort of pharmacist saying, here, let me rummage around and see if I've got some joy pills for you. Here, take these home. Take one a week for the next week. And if that doesn't do it, come back and I'll give you a higher dosage. He, he gives us, the, the only way he gives us joy, the only way, the only means is through his son, Jesus. He gives you Jesus. He gives you Jesus through his word as you read it daily each, each morning, each evening. He gives you Jesus through his people, He gives you Jesus here at this table. God gives you joy through his son, Christ. Now hear the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.